Good afternoon, everyone, or good evening, depending on where in the world you are. I think this is publication day. Am I right, Harry? Yep, it is. It, it is. is. Uh, U.S. Publication Day, anyway, for It Ends at Midnight, which is the third book by Harriet Tice. Harriet has been to see us, came to see us with her first wonderful book, which was called Blood Orange. And we talked, did we talk last year for your second book? I think we did. I don't think. You don't remember. No, or that was mid-pandemic, mid so could, anything could have happened and my okay. brain wouldn't have registered it, you know. Well, anyhow, fortunately, we are able to discuss and connect with her for this book. So before I introduce Alex, let me just say a few words about Harriet, and then I'm going to ask a question about how a graduate of Oxford and a graduate from Cambridge somehow got together. Harriet <laughs> grew up in Edinburgh, studied English at Oxford University, practiced as a criminal barrister in London for nearly a decade, subsequently completed an MA in creative writing crime fiction, at the University of East Anglia, which I'm also in a position to tell you is where Lee Child's entire Jack Reacher archive is now housed or will be housed, whatever. Um, so bearing in mind, uh, a lawyer of my acquaintance who had a sign over her desk that said, publish her practice, <laughs> it may well be that Harriet decided that a change of life would be interesting, just as I myself moved from law to book selling for reasons I won't bother to go into. Anyway, as I said, Blood Orange is her debut novel, was a Richard and Judy, which is equivalent of being like Oprah or Reese Witherspoon, if you're in England, a Richard and Judy book club pick and a Sunday Times bestseller. And The Lies You Told Her Second Novel was also a bestseller. And as I said, It Ends at Midnight is her third. Turning to Alex, whom we have just met, it's so exciting because We'd like to have met him sooner, but better late than never. Alex was born and raised in Cyprus. He has an MA in English Literature from Trinity College in Cambridge and an MA in Screenwriting from the American Film Institute in Los Angeles. The Silent Patient was his first novel, an amazing bestseller, continues to be a bestseller. And then he wrote The Maidens, his second novel, and um, got rave reviews after living for many years in London He's moved back to Cyprus, but apparently he's back in London today, crushing me because I wanted to Zoom with somebody from Cyprus. We're gonna, we'll work it out, Bob. We'll get that. Okay. Soon. So when your third book comes, I'm going to sign up to do that. So it turns out, and I really am going to ask you this because, you know, the distance from Oxford to Cambridge is far vaster than the mere mileage involved. When I studied at Oxford for a summer at Worcester College, the standing joke was if you wanted a book from the Bodleian, you didn't, you drove to Cambridge because you could get it faster than you could actually extract it from the Bodleian. So I'm wondering if that's how you managed to meet over a book. No, we met on a promotion for our own books, in fact, Olsen. didn't we? Bolson Library. Bolson is a northern town. Um, it has a very, very splendid library, but not in the most salubrious of areas. Um, but we, we, we met on a stage. Um, and in fact, it is the fourth anniversary of the publication of both of our debuts. No, yeah. I was 21st. Well, you, you were a couple you were, of You were published just earlier. before me, but we've been on a kind of parallel but but four years, a four year anniversary of it. So it's yeah. rather a nice point to be meeting together for the event today. Um, but yeah, I mean, I actually married a man from Cambridge against my better judgment as well. In fact, also from Trinity College, Cambridge. Oh. So, um, you know, they do get around, but he was a mathematician, um, is a mathematician. They generally are from Trinity. Yeah, that is that is the that is the big one. But um, 
yes um i think that this is this is rather more comfortable than bolton library i think wouldn't yes. you agree I would um, say so. <laughs> we'll be back i'm sure yes yes absolutely. well maybe not after this now but it was a <laughs> very very good event <laughs> Citizens' digression is absolutely generally the sum and substance of our Zoom interviews. Let me ask Alex, how did you go from Cyprus to Cambridge? How did I go? Um, Circuitously? I, um, no, pretty straightforwardly. I mean, my sister went um, and she did law. And so, and when I went the first time, I was about, I think, yeah, I was about eight years old, nine years old. And I just could never see anything so beautiful in my life. And it stayed with me. And it's funny because when I was there um, today and yesterday, I had that same feeling again. I always do. I think walking through Trinity Great Gate is such a special, spectacular experience. So um, I'm always going to be a little in love with Cambridge, I think. It really is spectacularly beautiful. I love wandering along the backs, as we say, yeah. you know, the water. And, you know, the music at King College is astonishing. But um, I do think it's... Oxford has been, you know, kind of, um, there's a lot of other things going on in Oxford, like the, the better place to live, probably Oxford, right, Harriet? Well, I've, always, I've always thought that, I mean, Cambridge is university with bits of town attached and Oxford is town with university. It's yeah. a sort of, um, I mean, I was always obsessed with Oxford, I think probably in the same way that you're obsessed with Cambridge. But I will say when I went to Trinity with my husband for an event recently, um, it put my admittedly old I mean I was at Corpus Christi College Oxford which is I mean that was set up by um, Elizabeth I think I don't know exactly but it's not one of the old but it's one of the oldest um, but it's tiny it's really really small um, and it has this paved quad in the front with a pelican on a sundial um, and it's it's very cute I hate to say it it's cute it's not you know you go into Trinity and you are sort of awed by the majesty of the architecture and all of it sort of looming but I don't regret where I went you know it was it was an obsession and I'm glad that I managed to achieve it but um but yeah I think I think you win Trinity wins I well, hate to say yeah. it don't <laughs> tell Matt I said that but <laughs> Well, remarkably, both university towns have uh, legendary bookstores. If you're in Oxford, it's Blackwell's. And I'm trying to remember, the name is escaping me, but he also, the one in Cambridge, is quite a mystery guy, or was. Heffers. That's or, it. No, Heffer, yeah, it's the yeah. H one, right. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, another wonderful, you could just have a wander. You could spend a whole day in Blackwell's or, you know, yeah. Heffers. So how wonderful. But anyway, we're actually going to go to Edinburgh for this book. So having, <laughs> having talked about colleges, and I looked it up um, in order to figure out how to pronounce Hogmanay. And to my surprise, it was Val McDermott and a video, <laughs> another crime writer and a very dear old friend um, about how to pronounce it. And it, it, I thought the etymology was really interesting. Um, as I understand it, it comes from a French word, or maybe it comes from a French word, but how do you actually pronounce H-A-U-D when you're going to say it? Is it how, how, how do you say Hogmanay? Hogmanay. It's Hogmanay. I mean, it's, it's kind of almost phonetic, at least that's how I would say it. Um, it's, it's, uh, you will know more about the etymology than I do. I'm afraid I've never actually looked it up. It's just one of those words that, you know, it's a sort of happy hogmanay. And 
and then you um I mean I'm a very bad Scot because I have no accent um I've always been known as the Scot from Surrey even though I I was born there and I was educated there and I was there until at 18 I left and went down to Oxford but this is just how I speak so um my pronunciation is probably, I think that Val McDermott would have it much better than I do. And I think that she would be the expert on this and I wouldn't attempt to argue in any way. Um, St. Hilda's Oxford that. never succeeded in erasing the Scots from Val's voice for sure. <laughs> yeah, and I think this, um, yeah, if I'd, if I'd had any, I don't know that it would have, but I didn't, so. I, well, I, I'm going to, amazingly <laughs> quiet here in a second and turn this over to Alex, but I did want to say that I think Harriet, uh, her legal background figures into her books and, and this one, it certainly um, is the case. We have a barrister and we're in Edinburgh and we have lots of, lots of things going on. So Alex, I'm going to turn this over to you. Okay, I have lots to ask. Lots of, I'm looking forward to picking your brains, Harriet. So, um, I, I I just well, I wanted to say that you know if I should, don't know if I should say this or not, but I probably should. That I've I've read all three of your books, and I think um, it ends a bit like is my favourite of them. Um, I read it first time um, was I think you sent me a proof, and I was in Poland for uh, quite a few days, and I just couldn't put it down. And I was doing interviews, and I had to keep like, picking it up the whole time to go back to it. Um, and one of the things I really love about it is just the readability. And I've said this to you. I think that you're and incredibly, you couldn't be boring if you tried. Your style is just so readable and so gripping. Is that something that you really have to work on or is that just a natural gift that comes to you? Oh, oh God, I mean, how, whichever way I answer that, I'm gonna sound awful. Um, I, I don't know, I mean, I don't know how it happens. It, the writing, the biggest issues I have in writing are actually with plots and making things you know things fit and trying to work out twists that the it it does seem that I can make things sort of punchy enough that people want to keep reading even uh -huh. if it stopped making any sense and then um I mean I'm currently on the second draft of my fourth book um and there are huge huge plot holes in it I know that it absolutely doesn't make sense but the feedback I've had from a couple of people who've read it that they they totally swept along by it and it's only afterwards they've gone hang on stop wait a minute oh. that just doesn't make any sense at all that needs to be fixed and so it's a sort of almost a magician's trick of you know if you just keep on going and going and going you hope that people won't stop and realize that actually it's complete rubbish and that it's full of, <laughs> it's full of I think the logical inconsistencies and psychological implausibilities were two of the more you know the kinder comments from my editor but um I think they never bothered Shakespeare did they so I don't know why they would bother you you know it's like <laughs> but then what if I but what if I ever want to write something that's a bit more contemplative um, you know, if I wanted to write a, 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 a love story, I have a feeling I'd still end up doing a whole load of duh, 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 kind of cliffhanger <laughs> moments, um, not remotely intentionally, but because I think I'm very lucky that I have found that my style just seems to be best adapted to the writing of psychological thrillers um, and this is great as long as it's what I want to continue to write I think if I ever want to do something different I'm going to be a bit stuck and I'm going to have to go away and completely unpick it but I mean I remember when I was learning 
um, I was doing an evening course and I was trying to write a dystopian um, feminist non-thriller, quite serious contemplation about climate change um, and, you know, how people were coping with rising water levels and it still kept coming over as a psych thriller you know despite my best attempts to sound intellectual and sort of literary it just I just couldn't help myself so I mean it's it's a blessing but it may be a curse in later life you know if people stop wanting to read psychological thrillers I think I'm in really quite big trouble um, well I don't but, think there's any danger of that so you should be all right um, <laughs> let's, let's talk about the book for a little bit then. Um, can you just give me the elevator pitch very quickly? Do you oh, have one? Uh, sort of. Um, it opens with two bodies impaled on iron railings outside a house in Edinburgh that are bleeding out onto the pavement after a hogmanay, a New Year party which has gone horribly wrong. Um, and the central question that drives the book is who are they and why are they dead? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You love a bit of gore, don't you, Harriet? Yeah, I'm a little bit obsessed with <laughs> I just, I walk past railings and I just, this, this, this phrase kept repeating in my mind of impaled on railings, impaled on railings. Um, and it sort of went from there. Um, and in fact, it opens, the very Great first opening. passage is a fox who's braved the fireworks of the New Year's Eve celebration to come out to look for some food. Um, and she's sniffed out the blood that's dripping onto the pavement and is actually thinking, oh, fresh meat, good, there's something to eat, um, before a whole load of hubbub and commotion means that she's chased off, leaving just a little trail of footprints. I really enjoyed doing that. It's that very startling fun. opening and it really works. I think it's great. Um, okay. so. Um, the, the question is, I was going to ask you about how you, where you start. People always ask me whether I start with plot, you know, character or location. And they're all really strong in this novel. Was one of them, do you have like a method or how does it happen? I wish I had a method because then I could keep using it. Um, no, this, this, as I say, there was the impaled on railings. This, this phrase just kept going, impaled on railings. And I mean, I think. It's, and to say I thought it was funny is not quite the right way of putting it, but it had tickled me as a way of opening. Um, and so that was going to be the, the aspect of death. And how would you fall off a roof? Well, of course, it would be because you had been to a party and you were drunk, because otherwise, mm. you know, unless it was deliberate, you'd, know, you'd jumped. Um, so... I knew that there would have to be a party of some description and, you know, why were they on the roof? It would be New Year and where's the best place in the world to have New Year? Well, from Edinburgh, we would say Edinburgh because it does have a massive street party at Hogmanay and it has a huge fireworks display. So that would explain why people were on the roof watching the fireworks drunk and likely to fall off. Mm -hmm. um, but then, of course, I had to find the people who, who were the people. Um, and I'm not giving anything away about the plot to say that the, um, the, the two main characters of the novel are two women, Tess and Sylvie, who are friends from high school when they first meet and who remain friends through the decades till now. Um, and they are both at the party that goes wrong. Um, and I had had in my mind just thoughts of, of those, those long-term friendships, you know, that, that you, people you've met, you've known since you were 13, 
they're like family you know they're almost more than family in some respects just because you know they're they're so intrinsically involved with your daily life and particularly during those very intense years of teenage years and and yet like family of course there's ups and downs and something that can be very positive to begin with can actually become quite negative and there can be toxicities that come in if you have people who have parallel lives and their lives are doing different things at different times and you know of course one of the things that happens with women is that you know because we end up being siloed we end up not being able to do everything that we might want you know so one person will marry and have children and perhaps their career will end up going away because they can't do everything Mm -hmm. and then the other person is single and has a very successful career and that causes frictions and tensions within it and and really by exploring those friendships you can start to explore you know very questions of you know how you live as a woman with a career and a family or a husband or no husband or no you know what do you do how do you do it and and so that I thought would be an interesting dynamic to explore and then finally for setting so that sort of gave me these two women who are both you know quite difficult in their own ways um and finally for setting well I I wrote this during lockdown and I was stuck in London you know as we were all stuck in our own places um and Edinburgh is where I grew up and Edinburgh is where I most wanted to go and the moment I was told I couldn't you know I wanted to go there even more so I basically in all of the passages of this book which is set in 1989-1990 um, are based on a lot of my own teenage experiences as a you know 17 year old starting to go to pubs underage drinking hanging out with friends smoking boys all of that kind of not smoking I never smoked that's not true that was someone else and I was just looking after them for someone else just in case any of my family are listening um, but you know that, that those 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 quite they are formative years you know that, that it's really intense life at 17 is really intense Um, And so, you know, I think I've said in the acknowledgements that all of the good bits of those 1989-1990 sections are actually based pretty much on fact. Um, It's where the, you know, the bad things that happen is where my imagination has has gone off and, you know, taken it and made it much darker. What about, Um, and the the, the sort of the toxic friendship that is at the heart of the novel, is that based on, inspired by reality or where did that come from? Well, I think just any number of the friendships that I've had from, you know, a young age that it's, it's, you know, they, they all carry their own challenges. And, you know, I've just hit 50. And that's always a moment. I think that the big birthdays, you know, birthdays with zeros are where you sort of do a little bit of a reckoning. And you mm-hmm. do a bit of a sort of looking back over the last decade. And 50 has felt like a particularly big deal you know not not a negative deal you know I'm very pleased to have got here um but you know one of my best friends died about well nearly two years ago and she was a friend I'd had from school and I mean and of course aspects of that have fed in that just you just start to think about what it all means um and I don't think that I could I couldn't write about that honestly actually just how awful it was and how horrible and how heartbreaking and how sad and you know sort of all of those feelings that by turning sort of all of that into something really nasty mm-hmm. um was actually quite cathartic because you know yeah. I got to I got to sort of play with it in a way that you know because actually I was you know through her illness I mean I'd like to think I was quite a good friend and I was you know I was nice and I was going around with food and yeah it was a very very hard time um and it did present though 
an idea of a what if that what if people actually behave very badly around this because i think that those those big life events you know just as friendships can come under strain when you know one person has a baby and another person doesn't and one wants them and the other you know, there's all these different things that can happen because we don't do things with sync sorry we don't do things with synchronicity you know we do things as we do them and it can sometimes be very difficult on the other person in the friendship when that's happening and mm. and I think there's a, you know there's a universality to that that we all have these friendships that have you know if we're lucky enough to have friends still from that long um they will have gone through some quite interesting times and it's it is I think something yeah there are a lot of thrillers about friendship and I think in a way friendships are almost I mean they are as important as relationships as sort of romantic relationships and sometimes can very much outlast them um mm. you know and and, and they're, the, they're the people who knew you first you know they're the people who knew you when you were just trying on what kind of person you were going to be and to see you know who you might become so I think it, the things I really like about their relationship the way that there is a sense that they have changed and they're not necessarily quite the same people that they were when they were young and there's a constant tension between that throughout the whole novel um that's why I think it's very evocative because we've all you know we've all been to school we've all had old friends you know we'll kind of harken back to university years as well and this kind of memories that haunt the book I think are really well done um and so it's clearly quite close to you that subject I think yeah 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 no absolutely absolutely um, tell me a little bit about the plotting you said you, you don't find it easy to plot how does that process happen for you how do you work it out I what I seem to be doing now and what I did with this book was that I wrote it from start to finish without any kind of involvement from anybody else. I mean, I think I showed people 20,000 words just to sort of make sure. I mean, they'd seen a synopsis and then obviously I didn't stick to that in any way, shape or form. But it gave a kind of rough idea of the setting, at least in the people. Um, and then when I got to about 20,000 words, I did a regroup and I did a re-synopsis and I thought, well, I'd better show them just to make sure that they don't think I've completely, you know, is this still vaguely all right? Um, and they said, yeah, yeah, seems fine. And so then I just went away and wrote it without looking back. Um, and I, you know, it, it was like I made changes sort of halfway through about some one of them had had children and I decided they weren't going to have their children anymore. And so I just was like, right, sod it. I'm not going to mention the children again. So they're sort of all left hanging around the dinner table, not wanting to eat their curry. You know, it's and I had to do quite a lot of editing to get rid of all the traces. I funny. hope I have now, finally. Um, <laughs> but then actually having because the it's all very well having a plan but I don't stick to them because the characters don't stick to them once I actually start to flesh the characters out on the page they do different things they behave in different ways and so I think you're a, it's you're a hamster, really well no I don't mean to be it isn't intentional I plan it just never works so I plan and then I pants and then I go back and I replan and then I pants and then I go back and I replan and and each time it sort of circles in closer and it does get closer um, I mean, in this, the first draft, I'd actually flipped it. So it was the other way around as to who died and, and who was more culpable than not. Um, and then it was pointed out to me that it shouldn't be that way around. That was the big editorial note. And 
I went away and thought about it and I realized that they were absolutely right and I'd just been shying away from something um, and so then I did the I did the re-reversal and I did it the way that it ought to have been but that's yeah I think we've picked up all of the wrong names as well but you know sometimes and as you know there's so much you can do on your own and then you have to stop and you have to let someone else read it get their input and then you go back and you do your best to deal with their input but it's do you a take on criticism well do you think um i think i do actually I don't like it you know I'll have 24 hours if they can all bugger off I'm never speaking to any of these people again they're completely ignorant and I'm a genius and then of course I'm like yeah Harriet shut up you're completely stupid um and in fact with this book four I've been doing I it was a long and very comprehensive editorial note and it's been extremely tough but going through it afterwards I realized I'd just about ticked off everything that was suggested to me um, I mean, I may have been blessed with extremely good editors. I mean, I do think that that has been the case. If someone makes a stupid suggestion, I don't touch it. And I know if it's a stupid suggestion. Um, and those annoy me when people are, you know, some of the some of the things that have been suggested. Well, I mean, reviews when people say, you know, it should have been this. And you're just like, yeah, no, you're wrong. Did you read your reviews? some of them occasionally mm. I try not to if I'm feeling really self-loathing I'll go onto Amazon and look at the two stars but Ooh, you know I, it, is, it is effectively self-harm you know not to yeah. belittle self-harm in any way but it, it, it can be excruciating you know it can tear mm. you apart but yeah. um do you you don't do you avoid no them? I don't I'm really I'm you've got, you've over, got millions you've got so many millions I so many yeah well so many you know dodgy ones to choose from I don't I don't actually um I find that really hard Sophie Hannah who is a mutual friend of ours the crime writer says to me that she can read any bad review of hers without even being touched emotionally by it and but, I'm not but, like that. but Sophie is then Sophie is just right Sophie's a, a very tough Sophie is <laughs> Sophie is Sophie is you know that I want to be Sophie when I grow up you yeah, know she's, yeah. that she is the Zen master um and I aspire <laughs> I, I aspire to that but um I mean I think that generally when people point out things which are wrong I kind of knew already and I was trying to get away with it most mm -hmm. of the time and so when they do notice it's okay I didn't get away with it. It was weak. It wasn't just my imagination. Um, the part of actually, me feels like you, go on, sorry, go on. No, I was just going to say that there's a chapter in Blood Orange that I always knew was absolutely right. That was, uh, and it's very rare that I write anything where I'm just completely sure that it's, it's that's it, spot on it. There's nothing else needs to be done to it. Um, and funnily enough, I mean, when I'd finished it, it's a chapter set in Brighton. And when I finished it, I was just like, that's it, that's done. And it has never had more than, you know, maybe a couple of commas moved around in it. Mm. It has no one, no one, and it had a lot of people go through it. No one has ever suggested touching that. So I think that's why I can take it because I do know that it's, you know, and we're not the best judge of our own work. You know, it's, we need other people. I yeah. certainly need other people. I need editors. I think editors are wonderful. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Blood Orange. I wanted to like circle back, if we could, to the beginning um, but, uh, and how you came to write Blood Orange, because you had another career first, because you were a criminal barrister. Right? That's right, yes. Um, I had, I mean, I left the bar because I had kids 
and it wasn't a career that was commensurate with children it's not something that you can mm. do part-time if you're actually going to have any kind of serious progression um and so I had left and that was hard it was the right decision but it was hard and I missed it in the four or five years that I was just the expert and where everyone's clothes were really were quite difficult I didn't take that well to the whole I mean I love family life but you know I needed to be doing something else as well um, and so I started writing but I think I mentioned before that I had this obsession with writing feminist dystopia um, basically it was lots of ambivalent motherhood stuff you know which I think was you know I was writing what I knew um, but it was all fairly bad to say the least of it and very derivative. Um, so it wasn't crime it wasn't like oh I want to write a crime novel. No 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 and it was only as I sort of kept going into it that I realised that everything kind of came out like a psychological thriller I think as we were chatting about before that I just sort of I like kind of twists and things not being as they seem and that reveal and I like that withholding and then you sort of ah here you go um that's what this is really about I enjoy doing that and it just is how I end up writing so having sort of got rid of the urge to do these dystopian things um I then did a schoolgate one that didn't get published which is good because it was terrible um, but it had bits of the character of Alison in it, I think, because she was a, you know, she had a lot of guilt, that character. She drank too much. She was quite messy, um, but doing her best at the same time. Um, but she wasn't a barrister. I hadn't touched anything to do with the law. And it was only when I read, um, it was the, um, that brilliant Louise Doughty book, Apple Tree Yard. Yeah, yeah, I remember which, that in the acknowledgements at the end and that I don't know did that make it to the US Barbara that was mm -hmm. uh, yeah, no, that's, I, read it. I remember the apple tree yard part right it's a really really I thought that was a brilliant book and that that was sort mm -hmm. of centered around a trial and at the end in the acknowledgements Louise Doughty thanks a barrister that she'd spent a month with watching she while she was researching she'd sat in the old bailey and she'd watched the trial from start to finish and you know while my practice was never as you know highfalutin as trials in the old bailey um I did know and I'd spent 10 years doing this and that's 10 years of research that you can't you know you can't get that through research it was lived experience um, and it just occurred to me that maybe people might be more interested in it um, and and that you know that, that people have an image of barristers perhaps as slightly more I don't know, pompous old duffers like, like Rumpel. I mean, I love Rumpel. I mean, I love, I mean, I love Rumpel, but you know, that sort of quite corpulent gentleman who drinks a lot of pools and goes to Elvino's. And, mm -hmm. and it's an interesting world for women because, as I say, it's not a career that actually works with motherhood at all. He's, no, it's not a career that works for the person who's the primary carer of the children, which you know by and large ends up being the mother you know that is just kind of how it tends to happen um so if someone is actually pursuing it in as full-time as a way as is needed to do it well um they are not they're not around for their kids very much and so that means that even though a huge number of women start at the bar um they leave you know at the beginning it's sort of over 50 percent I think women wow. um but now you know by the time that you get to the point of looking at how many king's council there are and how many judges you know it's gone down to something like 17 percent or less you know it's it's the attrition the race of attrition because it just is the most non-family friendly career that you can imagine and also there is an awful lot of this 
old duffers sitting around in pubs getting hammered talking about war stories you know it's a stressful isolated career and you know and that's the way people blow off steam at the end of a hard day's work now of course not all barristers there are some very professional ones who who you know totally focus and go out there and you know they clean up and end up on the high court bench but I just thought it might be interesting and I thought it'd be interesting for me to write um and it seems that people have found it interesting to read, you know, whether or not they've approved of her decisions or her lifestyle or anything else. It's it's generated a certain level of of heat, I suppose. And, you know, if people are hating it and hating your characters, you know, you've obviously done something right um, <laughs> just because you've provoked a reaction. And that's what, you know, you want to provoke a reaction, don't you? Rather than just be like, mm, you know, it's all right. Mm. Uh, three stars. Nah. You know, it's it's. I'd rather a one star hated it, that woman, what she was doing to her child. I mean, those reviews were quite fun to read because you just sit there going, you know, she's not real. Child's not real. No one's in danger. It's all fine. Um, <laughs> I've always thought it was interesting how few judges actually write, you know, write crime novels. There have been very, very few over the years. I think possibly, um, you know, judicial discretion kicks into play or judges uh -huh. don't really want to be reviewed. The two that have been most successful in the States have been administrative justice rather than, um, but I, I have to ask you, Harriet, since it's one of my favorite books of all time, but it's so old now that very few people have read it. Are you familiar with The Tragedy of Law by Cyril Hare? No. I'm Which not. is actually, in my view, the finest legal thriller possibly ever written. I am wow. taking a note right and now. It, it is an amazing it. book, and it is set back in the 30s when the judge still rode the circuit preceded by trumpeters. I mean, it's just such a <laughs> But in fact, is um, well, there's a number of modern things in it, but I really recommend it to you. It's a, it's, it's very surprising. Um, the judge's name is Francis Pettigrew, and I think he lived on in one or two other things. But Alex, let me circle back here. When you were asking Harriet about her writing process, this is the question we get most often from viewers, you know, who are, I think, I think somehow readers feel that somehow if they could just do the process that magically maybe they could write a book. I'm never entirely clear how it all works, but what was your, you know, The Silent Patient was such an astounding success, and I'm assuming your very first book, because I, you know, did, how did that happen for you? What was your process there? It, it's very similar to Harriet, because I was about to say that I'm really jealous of her legal knowledge. Um, and I wish that I had that. And I suppose it's a little akin to me having, you know, studied um, psychotherapy for a few years, right. in that I am able to write about it convincingly, and people are interested in that subject. And it was just a no-brainer for me because I wanted to write a detective story, but I don't know anything about detectives. And I thought, oh, but I do know about therapists and I can portray that. And there you go. And then you kind of put it together. And like Harriet says, it's just about trying not to be boring. I think really it's just trying to make it as interesting as you can. And so you throw everything you can at it. Um, as for the actual plotting and all that stuff, I don't know where that comes from. It's all, that's, that's difficult. You know, and I think it comes from just a deep love of fiction and wanting to tell a good story and having read a massive amount as a child and a teenager don't you think Harriet? Yeah yeah there's the yeah. um that thing about the 10,000 hours of practice isn't there that makes you an expert in something um mm -hmm. and I think that 
so it was something my husband was saying to me about writing that that he said you know you've done that 10,000 hours of practice just because you have spent all your life from you know from from when I could first read I've been obsessed with reading and have read you know I was we both have a huge love for Agatha Christie don't we mm -hmm. so you know that, yeah. that had read all of Agatha Christie all of Dorothy Sayers all of you know that that the, the, the sort of the slightly more user-friendly detective stories and then sort of segueing into Patricia Cornwell and the slightly nastier kind of scarf better mm -hmm. and serial killers and do you like, and, you um, know, do you like Ruth Rendell as well Barbara Vine yes and Ruth Rendell and Barbara Vine yeah. and and, and P.D. James I, I've got a huge love for P.D. James really remarkable writers yes I yeah. have to share with you I had this marvelous moment P.D. James was here in 1996 oh, yeah. I think it was oh amazing we did an event. Well, I've, I've been with her in London. And Harry Keating once had a dinner party, which I was privileged to attend with mm. P.D. James. And I'm trying to remember a couple of other. And I was so awestruck. This will surprise you because you've already got my measure. I didn't. I could hardly speak. <laughs> but anyway, so here's Phyllis. And um, and she was under a number of handicaps. It was a terrible rainstorm. She hadn't had time to change. And we had an overflow crowd. We had this massive crowd at the library and people out in the lobby and so forth. And it was it was our first streaming event, astonishingly, in 1996, which is why we've been able to do it so easily. But she went on and on about, you know, um, as only she could, because she was a very remarkable speaker, about why she wrote crime fiction and, you know, the, the moral... Um, highlights and the you know the way she could examine um, so many things and when she was done the first person who popped up his hand was some guy and he stood up and he said when are you going to write a real book mm. I've never forgotten it I was moved to homicide I truly oh. truly wanted to kill him oh, and, I... I, and I thought um, I think crime fiction is a way to explore not just you know crime but but social issues and moral issues and you know ways of living and so many things that you can do yeah. you can examine through a crime novel you can writers like like you know pg james or ruth rundle i think would have been great writers whatever Ooh. subject matter they had turned their hands to they just chose to write crime that's all but they well, were I both humans yeah. you know and suddenly for the same reason i think it was because that they they felt that through that lens they could say things that you know were really important and mattered to them. I think that that's um Ian Rankin um gave us some classes when I was at um UEA at the University of East Anglia and um he said that he had chosen a police procedural as his his vehicle because having a police investigation meant that every strata of class and society could be brought into the novel so that you could actually look at society as a whole by having someone who could move freely between you know the highest of society to to people who are the most excluded um and i mean and actually and denise minor came and spoke to us at uea as well it was an extraordinary course and she said that she had been going to do um a a DPhil, a PhD in jurisprudence, and she'd been thinking about, she wanted to, you know, her thesis would have been on, you know, aspects of social justice. And she thought, you know what, if I write a thesis, I'm going to end up with maybe three readers. Um, whereas if I write a crime novel, I can make the same points, I can, I can still 
make some points through this um, and at the same time, um, you know, disguise it. You're not bludgeoning people around the head with your messaging, um, but you are, you know, you sort of pulling people in with a good story and then subverting their thinking, hopefully. I mean, my proudest moment with Blood Orange was being told that I'd caused a divorce um, <laughs> because, well, no, because someone had read it. In fact, it was my osteopath had read it and then he'd given it to his wife and she'd read it and she'd gone, hang on a minute, that's the way that so-and-so's husband behaves towards her, um, a friend of theirs who was terribly unhappy. And they were like, there's a, you know, this is bad. This is bad. Here is a perfect example of why this is also bad because it was an abusive marriage. And so the woman went away and read it. And I think, because it can be hard when you're in the middle of something to recognize it for what it is, but by seeing a mirror being held out to it of, of you know, what is some truly abusive and horrible behavior in the novel, um, she thought, you know what, I'm not having this. And so she broke up, mm -hmm. she, she left her husband, which I was really pleased about. Um, because, you know, I mean, I, I like the idea of surprising people with twists, but it's nice actually to have you know I did want to make some serious points with that novel at least about domestic violence and coercive control and the way that it can work and I think that crime gives you that it can work on a lot of different levels you know mm -hmm. some people will read it purely as a puzzle you know I guessed it on page 67 it's no good other people will read it they'll you know they're interested in the outcome they like the page turning aspect but they can see that there is perhaps more you know there is there is characterization, you know, there is depth, there is psychological, um, you know, meaning to it. Um, and I think that, you know, we're all at our realists when we're confronting our own mortality. And, you know, crime novels are essentially all about, you know, forcing us to confront mortality because, you know, we are sometimes literally confronted <laughs> with a dead body and we have to think about how we might respond to that. So um, I think that it's, um, I think that the dissing of genre fiction, it really, it gets my back up hugely. I think mm. that's a terrible question. And to ask that of P.D. James, don't P.D. Yeah. That's so but, but you're absolutely right. The thing that is so remarkable is it, it, it takes all those issues, but it's the story that makes, makes it, uh, the reader absorbs it, you know, carried along in the story and doesn't recognize yeah all the lessons and you know questions and so forth that there I mean, no one wants to be no one wants no one wants to be hectored no one wants to be sermonized it's you know people like that their truth to come with a you know it's a spoonful of sugar isn't it only it's yeah. a it's a bucket full of gore we give them instead and you know <laughs> some like hang the cliffhangers at the end of chapters tell me what you think uh, this is a new phrase i've just run across in describing because you know now everybody wants to put labels on books tell me what you think feminist gothic is oh which is um <laughs> i don't know so i'm i'm asking i'm seeking um, knowledge what is feminist, feminist gothic well, I mean, for a start, all gothics kind of been feminist from the start because you know that 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 I mean, Northanger Abbey is kind of quite feminist because she's underestimated all the way through, um, and she's also made some very stupid. You know, she's a bit stupid about how she does things. Um, but I feminist gothic. Um, oh, women are empowered in castles. Um, to break out of them. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It's a sort of... Me either. I'm going to try to figure it out. There, there are buzzwords that, you know, you mentioned reviewers, but um, I spend a lot of my time sifting through reviews and um, 
And there, there are little buzz phrases that arise seemingly from the ether, you know, and suddenly they're very popular and, and Gothic has been a big thing for a while, but now um, there's like- Domestic, Gothic one, and, domestic you know, suspense was one, right, for a while. What was that phrase, domestic? domestic, domestic oh, domestic noir, that was, yeah, noir. That, was, that was, that was big. I think domestic noir is sort of, it seems to be shifting. Well, it's shifting onto a lot of witches. I have a feeling that Gothic feminism is, is you know, AKA witches, because there's loads of witches. And I mean, which is great because I love a witch. Um, now, there's a whole vogue for witches at the moment, you know, witches massive. in fiction, witches all around us. I know it's completely yeah. fascinating. So before we call Jacob back up, let me ask you, Alex, what are you, are you working in fact on a new book? I am right now, yeah. I'm just um, about to deliver it. I've just delivered it, I've got some notes back and hopefully we're going into the copy edit soon, um, which is great. So I'm, Harriet, you're ahead of me, yeah? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I've just, well, I've just done the first round of notes on book four. So um, yeah, yeah, which That's the world, title of which is Blood Orange is the New Black because it oh, starts no. in a women's prison, but I'm not obviously going to call it that. Um, I love I that. Hope you had, did you have fun writing that book? Yeah. Um, it was weird and intense. I did it really fast. I wrote okay. it. I wrote the first draft between July and October. I remember um, we, were, we were emailing. Just yeah, as yeah, email. yeah. Well, you you were really, really helpful at the beginning. You were so helpful. And, you're, and before you, I knew you finished own. it, 10 minutes later, you were like, I'm done now. Yeah, <laughs> so. well, I finished it, but I mean, sort of. It was so messy. And the editing has been really traumatic because it's been like a proper sort of dissection. Um, but apparently it's shaping up nicely was a note I had this afternoon and I'm going to take shaping up nicely as encouragement um and also it's brilliant because I'm not getting my notes back for another week so I've got a week off oh, 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 I don't oh, need to do okay. any work for another week um I should start something else um do no but that's brilliant that you're nearly so you're nearly done because you were sounding yeah. less done last week yeah yeah I'm, I'm hoping to be done um, you know, they, you're, like Billy Wilder said, you're never done. They just take it away from you. <laughs> I, I think, you know, with our first novel, we both had the, the privilege of taking our own time to do it. Yeah. And I've never had that experience since then. And I do long for it. Uh, I miss I miss that. I, I miss the idea of writing something without having had it okayed first. I might, I'm sort yeah. of wondering about going rogue seeing what happens yeah, but, but that's the fate of the professional writers that you do actually have to meet <laughs> deadlines otherwise yeah. as like I said you could just go on forever and you know it would never get done um it's you know it, it's so interesting occasionally I've had discussions with authors about you know how the book might have been if they'd had more time um and you know I, I suppose there is a moment when you have to judge that it's time to let go but maybe you know, in retrospect, maybe it wasn't quite time or maybe it didn't come soon enough and you tinkered with it too long. I mean, there are all kinds of ways that you can, think you can look at it. Generally, generally, by the time it's gone, I never want to look at it again for yeah. as long as I live, just yeah. because it's I so like painful. It's so painful having to tear it apart. And you've been, how long have you been? When did you? Know, you... I think for a while, been editing yeah. for a long time. The problem is that it's just never the thing that you had in your head. The thing that you had in your head was perfect and you, you could never even always, approximate it. Always. There's so, a writer named Robert Eversis who said, Alex, a really true thing. He said, every book has three stages. 
there's the, as you say, the platonic book, there's the perfect book that lives in your head and it, it only exists really before you write it. And then there's the book that you actually produce. And that's the second stage. But the third stage, and this is the one that I see the most often, is that every reader reads the book in his or her own way. And every reader actually reads a slightly different book for that reason, because they bring all of their own, you know, skills and emotions and everything else to the book. And it's fascinating to preside over discussions at the store and, you know, recognize how differently people can read exactly the same book. But is that also true of the author? You know, is, is will the author recognize any of those discussions? So, you know. I'm jealous that, that Harriet was went there. So you were there for, your, for Blood Orange, right? I did a, I did a tour for Blood Orange, which yeah. was, yeah. it was an extraordinary experience. It was, it was brilliant. Um, I mean, I felt like a rabbit in headlights because I was so new to, yeah, sure. you know, I think that I would, in a way, I think, well, it would be a lot easier now just because I've done so many more of these and feel a lot more, um, a lot more confident with just speaking in front of an audience. You know, it wasn't something I'd done for such a long time and suddenly there was an audience and it was like, oh my God, oh my God. Um, but no, it's a brilliant bookshop. I mean, it's something that we really, we, we've killed our, our crime bookshops in, there was a brilliant one in London. And that was Max and Jacobowski, right? Oh, so it was such yeah. a good bookshop. And and it's just, I mean, it's so sad that we don't have more sort of specialist crime bookshops here. I mean, well, the whole bookshop, I mean, you know, there's a lot of brilliant independence, but it's well, it's it's a fantastic bookstore, and you should make sure that you get there sometime, Alex. Oh, I really they want are, to. They are, yeah. it, well, they said that they, they owe me a tour because they've not had a tour, so they promised to the next one. So I will be there in 2024. Oh, that would be absolutely wonderful. Though I have to ruin this by telling you that while it started as a mystery bookstore, I've spent 15 years trying to unbrand it as a mystery bookstore. <laughs> and, and here's why. Because each member of staff takes the store in a slightly different direction. And then customers, those pesky customers, readers, they come in and they ask for things that are not, in fact, part of your specialty and you know the secret to keeping it going for 33 years is you have to keep evolving it so mm. the core of it is crime but that's probably good advice for writers as well you know it's to keep yeah. evolving it yeah. really is yeah. but oddly enough our our best-selling section um during COVID there were two one was classics and not just crime classics but all manner of classics because Poison Pen Press when we started it which we've now sold to your publisher Harriet does the British Library crime classics, but then we also got the Library of Congress, where I used to be a librarian, to do a Library of Congress crime classic. But then we discovered that it wasn't all crime classics. It was like Moby Dick, or people had time to read War and Peace, or, you know, whatever it all is. But the second highest turning section, oddly enough, Alex, for you, is self-help. Oh. There is an amazing, you know, uh, desire for people to read books about any number of things, you know, to help you cope with life or improve yourself or comfort yourself or grow yourself or whatever it might be. So, mm -hmm. you know, we've had to adopt that, adapt that way, but we only have so much space. So at some point, you know, you have to be rigorous about what you can include and what you can talk about. It can't be the whole universe of books. So yeah, there's a lot of books. So.
it is. Now let's call Jacob up and see if there are any questions from the audience or Jacob usually has very penetrating questions of his own. Hey, Alex. Hey, Harriet. Hey. Hi. Yeah, we have a few questions from Facebook. This one's from Linda. Do you think women have a propensity for psychological thrillers while men focus more on a physical thriller? Society tends to paint them into an opposite corner. Do you think that's true? Um, certainly my readership is um, primarily women. Um, and I think that um, psychological thrillers tend to be regarded as being um, more female. Um, and arguably that's reflected in the way that, you know, some prize giving and reviews are uh, done that, um, you know, books by women for women tend to get rather less um, space than, you know, the, 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 the men books with the, the big hefty crimes and the police procedurals um, tend to get um, yeah, taken rather more seriously. I think that, that psychological thrillers can be seen as, as more disposable, um, which, you know, is inherent misogyny. I think that 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 sort of belittling of it um, is something I think is is completely wrong. Um, I think that I mean we mentioned domestic noir earlier, and obviously domestic noir. You know, if if women are more traditionally to be found concerned with domestic, you know, because they're stuck in the house dealing with kids or dealing with aged parents or whatever those the, the, their responsibilities might be. Um, you know, and women are also, you know, more the victims of male violence than, you know, statistically. I think that, you know, the greatest threat to women can come from within the home. Um, and that is in itself a psychological thriller because it is the, the building of dread as a relationship that starts out loving turns more and more dark and, and, and horrible. So um, I, I, I'm not going to complain about it because it's given me a very, very healthy readership. Um, and I, feel delighted that what I write resonates with so many people and that they can find perhaps something of their own experience reflected in the pages of the thrillers I write, which, I mean, I'm going to guess Alex might say the same. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have an opinion about it. All I know is that I think that women are the best crime writers, in my opinion, and, and the only ones that I really read. So I'm not really super interested in male crime writers. I just don't, I prefer the, the, the possibly the female approach is slightly more psychological, um, just more, so it's more intellectual. I mean, somehow, somehow, I don't know, maybe that's wrong, but um, I prefer female crime writers. I think they're better at it and I don't really know why, but it's uh, an interesting. That's your truth, Alex, so it can't be wrong. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I think. Okay, great. Um, this one says, Jeffrey Deaver read five of his books one summer and was absolutely absolutely depressed. Um, do you consider how dark you want to make your stories to be before you write them? Or do you feel like you personally have a darker um, a subconscious that you kind of utilize um, for your writing? Yeah. Um, <laughs> In a word. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think that I'm actually, you know, I, 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 I have fluffy pets in my own life and I've got, you know, pretty functional relationship and nice kids and, you know, it's all sort of things are quite nice. But yet when I start writing, it, it, it does go really quite horrible. And I think that, um, 
I guess it's a form of catharsis as well that, you know, my shadow self comes out on the page. I mean, I was sort of like Alison in Blood Orange, but not nearly so bad. Um, but, you know, you take the small bits of dark and then you you wind them up and you weave them up into something much bigger, you know, which which works on the page. Um, but I think we all, you know, we all have sort of shadow selves that harbour fantasies of murder and destruction. Does it ever get a bit, a bit much for you? The world's um, it can... I found actually writing my second one, which was about toxic schoolgate politics, I found that incredibly hard to write. And I realised much later that, you know, in that I would sort of come away from the page, you know, I'd sort of write bits and I'd be really, really angry. And I think it's because that was based a lot on experience I'd had of, you know, dealing with my daughter's school and not enjoying the schoolgate experience there in any way. Um, and because I was sort of hanging out in my head with these really obnoxious people, it meant that I was just continually, even at home in a nice, calm environment, surrounded by, you know, those those feelings that had been so unpleasant when I was facing them in real life. So I think that, you know, I tend to write the darker stuff sitting in bed. And I think I need to be in a sort of quite comfortable, safe environment in order properly to explore that darkness. But in a way, once it's on the page, it's kind of gone. I think that's what I mean about the catharsis, that you can work through some of that and then it's not as bad afterwards. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, I thought with my, I said, my second novel that the subject matter was um, sadder than I was prepared for. And it's about a woman grieving her husband and she's really sad and depressed and um it it was just a lot for me because i lived with it for a couple of years and then afterwards i i thought wow i, I didn't choose that well I, I i wouldn't choose such a um a depressing subject again because it does get under your skin when you're thinking about it all day every day for a long time um yeah yeah all right um Linda says, uh, how much do you consider the US uh, readers when you're writing about the British court system? Um, I would imagine it's pretty similar. Or do you explain it at all? Do you have to explain it? Um, I think that the, I mean, as a starting point, I can't because I just don't know. I mean, I don't know the minutiae of the US legal system. Um, and I don't know how the law works. Um, and I, I think that I have chosen so far to write in a jurisdiction with which I'm familiar and that if I'm not, I can research very easily that I'm not having to learn a completely new legal system from scratch. Um, what I think is similar is that both the US and English Welsh systems operate on an adversarial basis. And so you have the prosecutor, the defender, who are each fighting out their versions of the case um, with a judge who presides over the, um, the procedure of it. Um, so I think on that basis, they kind of work together. Um, I mean, certainly with the continent, I mean, France, I think, operates an inquisitorial system where the prosecutor is actually the person who's investigating into the case um and i think that there are some i mean obviously i mean i've read a lot of us um legal thrillers and you know have seen that there are i mean that there are things that would be done with witnesses and there are things that would be done with the jury or with 
would be done with you know seeking out of evidence that simply we couldn't do that that lawyers barristers certainly couldn't do that in the UK but I can't um you know that that sort of jack of all trades master of none I can't pretend an expertise that I don't have um it would be very interesting one day to write something that was set within you know a, a, a US court but it would take a lot of time for me to research that properly and I wouldn't want to do it if I was just making it up um because I I like the fact that I know what I'm talking about um okay. I, mean, I may make mistakes but you know you could only do that in federal court because the U.S. system, you know, is splintered up into 50 states. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, Virginia, where I studied law, is a commonwealth. Arizona is actually derives from the Spanish. Um, and so, you know, we're very, very different state to state. Um, federal court would be the only really consistent thing that you can do. But um, there are there are really vast differences. Just the difference between being a solicitor and a barrister doesn't exist in this country. Um, you know, so right there, that is um, a hallmark. Um, but I think that's what's fun about reading legal thrillers set in different countries is that you get to absorb um, during, you know, the whole vogue for streaming television. I've watched a lot of French crime shows and an enormously successful. Let me recommend to you the best thing that I have seen. It is a Korean legal drama. It's called mm -hmm. Extraordinary Attorney Wu. And yeah. I'm telling you, it is just beyond brilliant but oh, wow. they, oh my god if you haven't seen it alex you just i mean it's 16 episodes and praise god they're going to do another one in 2024 i won't even mention the whales and well i will mention the whales and the dolphins which are kind of crucial to the whole thing but the the korean legal system is absolutely fascinating and very different the power of the judge who can actually overrule the jury for example which he does at least mm -hmm. twice Nice. It's just astonishing. Oh, so, I, I think mean, really, we love that here. Yeah, just that extraordinary attorney woo. <laughs> and then I live in Arizona, where our you know our political candidate for governor, who has managed now to to take her her loss all the way through. I, what are we on, Dave, Jacob? Our fourth appeal or something? I mean, surely the British <laughs> would put up with that kind of nonsense. It's just absurd. So you know. Yeah. Stick to your last. This is this is it. This is it. This is it. You, I think you've got to you. You know what you know, and trying to do something that was I. I would just get it so wrong. It would just be, it would be a nightmare from start to finish. Yeah, but I think I think the charm of your books for Americans is in fact entering into the British legal system. You know, um, and possibly British readers feel the same way about reading American legal thrillers, you know, they may, and then we've already talked about the French and the Napoleonic Code, which is completely different. So yeah. here we are. There are even Indian legal thrillers, which is even more complicated, but there we go. Jacob, any more? Yeah, one last question. This one's from Diane. Um, has your editor ever cut out a scene that was too dark or have you ever had a problem with that? Uh, there was a phrase, which I don't think I can really say, in public polite company but it was it was a way of describing fireworks which actually I put in as a I thought Sarah Pimbera would find it funny and she did because I showed her and she thought it was funny um but my editor put a note beside it just going too much question mark and I was like <laughs> oh okay yeah I might in fact no and there was another bit where there was a bath she's had a bath and it's full of kind of 
detritus of skin and generally and he I think he's a lot more squeamish than me and he just said no that's just don't don't do that and I didn't feel argumentative about it because I'm not trying to you know that that it it works if it works but if you're just being superfluous you know I wasn't trying to be shocking for the sake of it it gratuitous that was the word I was looking for I keep forgetting words but I did I wasn't trying to be gratuitous I was just actually entertaining myself and sometimes that can go slightly further than it should so um I don't well you know you always you must I've got these easter eggs you know I've got these little easter eggs in there for me or for my friends of just bits which I know that they're going to think it's funny even if everyone else doesn't quite get it and yeah I shouldn't have described fireworks that way I'm sorry Jack I won't do that again um <laughs> wow well as i said when we started our we never have a run of show we all just digress <laughs> off in whatever direction we feel like but it's always entertaining so what a pleasure it was to meet you has been rather alex to meet you and harriet a delight to see you again um maybe for really fortunate travel will allow them to come back to Scottsdale, which would be wonderful. Anyway, thank you all for joining us. Let me hold up again. It ends at midnight. Today is publication day, and happily, we actually have copies for sale at the Poison Pen. What a good idea. So we encourage you to order one. So goodbye, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a lot of fun. Congratulations, thank Harriet. Thank you so much. Thank Lots you. Bye-bye. Bye. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.